This is Jeff Paris, and you're listening to Talking Blues. Let's talk about the art of songwriting, because I think of you as a songwriter, as a composer. I don't know if you think of that as the primary focus, but I, I know you're known for your songwriting. When did the art of songwriting become a thing for you? When did you realize this is something you want to do? It's very specific. Um, I was musical from birth. And, uh, you know, there's recordings of me at two singing standards on a tape recorder. My parents were just fascinated with this musicality. And um, so... Uh, so does, does, are your parents really musical? Does that come from them? They were not professional musicians. My dad was super musical, great voice, trumpet player, but also uh, a difficult guy. And uh, so uh, more about that later. My mother was extremely supportive, but uh, um, they were uh, not happily married. And so this sort of soup of, they were very cultural, and they, my mother especially was really... Uh, uh, taking me to concerts and singing all the time and playing records all the time. And my dad was too. They both loved music. And my dad uh, came from a very flamboyant family in New York, the Frank D. Shattuck Company. They owned Schraff's and uh, Schraff's Candies, a millionaire family. Uh, it was because his mother's sister married into the, into the family, you know. So there was a lot of... Uh, Algonquin round table kind of uh, uh, New York cognoscenti culture going on with that. But what preceded that was the same woman was previously mar married to Con Conrad, who was an Academy Award winning songwriter who wrote The Continental, which was used in commercials for, you know, right. the car, the uh, Plymouth Continental, you know, and, for, and it was uh, sung by uh, Fred Astaire. Now, my dad was just observing that. He became a dentist. He's a musical guy who became a dentist because he grew up in the, uh, in the uh, uh, Depression era, which transformed anybody with any aspirations to be an artist. Not anybody, but a certain percentage of the American population put their art in the dumper in order to do something. So, you know, he loved playing trumpet. He did some gigs. Depression hit. Went to dental school. So there's a little cocktail of possible conflict. But anyway, long story short, uh, I grew up loving music, loving songs, loving to perform written material. It never occurred to me that somebody, I thought all the songs that will ever be written had already been written. As a little kid, you just think like, oh, I'm going to learn this, I'm going to learn that. And um, so uh, I did a little piano playing uh, and then uh, rebelled against the music. Uh, literacy thing. I just, you know, I was a real natural. I sat down at the piano, I started playing, and then started playing guitar and became technically involved. And so I was a technically playing, singing musician who loved to expand my repertoire. No songwriting urges. I was eight when I started playing guitar, became 12 
that's the 60s. All this great music was coming out. I wanted to learn how to play all the different songs. I became more facility uh, driven. And, but in my neighborhood, there was a guy who did want to write songs. His, uh, his reaction to all of this music was to write. My reaction to all of this music was to learn it and play it. We became friends. He would write the songs. I would say, this would sound better if you did this. And I began to arrange his songs. John Keller. What, what age were you at that point? At that point, I'm probably maybe 12 or 13, something like that. And this guy was my best friend. He still is my best friend, John Keller. He wrote some big songs. We both came up together as songwriters. Uh, so my formative exploration into songwriting was more as an adjunct, uh, you know, uh, orchestrating kind of arranger guy. I had, you know, made a few modifications. They were his songs. And that continued with a guy who I went to junior college with. So that's a pattern. I, I ran into a guy, Jay Greska. Jay Greska was in a band called Maxis, uh, did a brief artist career. Uh, but we went to junior college because we were trying to expand our knowledge. We need some kind of education. And back in the 70s, out in the West Coast, we didn't know about Berkeley School of Music or that there was, you know, there was any way to get a formal music education if you weren't classically trained. That was how it worked. Was classical music of any interest to you at all? Uh, a, a little bit, you know, a, a little bit. I, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I loved, I, I was exposed to classical music. That was part of my, my foundation. But I didn't take piano lessons and learn classics, you know. So the songwriting door opened as a result of a sort of a traumatic experience. So I was very comfortable helping my songwriter friend, and then uh, we lost touch with each other when we, well, he, he went to college, and, um, and I went to junior college and met my friend Jay, and we spent a couple of years working together. Same thing, he had these songs that he had written, I, uh, I was never like, I should be doing that. I mean, a little touch of like, God, I should just really, you know, but these are great, but they could be better. So I was more of a producer-arranger mentality about songwriting. At this point, are you thinking that you will pursue music as a career? Oh, there was no... <laughs> There's no question about it in anybody's mind but mine because my strident and rigid father who had uh, observed the music business from inside the 30s and 40s, Con Conrad, New York, flesh peddling, he's just hated the idea of me doing it, you know. Uh, but there was no ambiguity about it. However, I was, you know, just impressionable enough to think, oh, yeah, can't make any money at this. Meanwhile, I'm 11 years old and I'm teaching guitar to college kids. And I was in the window-filled uh, uh, little sunroom of a, a well-to-do family and uh, the brother of a friend of mine was asking me to teach him guitar. And, well, after the second lesson, you know, the sun was streaming in and it was late afternoon and it was like that moment in a, you know, Simon and Garfunkel song that you know, the, uh, dangling conversation. The conversation dangle, all right, and I'm sitting in this pristine overlooking the Sunset Boulevard, and he says, so what are you going to do when you, you know, grow, when you, you know, he's like, you know, Jeff, you know, 
I go, well, maybe I'll be like a journalist or a lawyer. And he, he went, <laughs> I went, what? He goes, you're a musician, man. I went, yeah, but I can't make any money at that. He goes, yes, you can. And that continued for about another six months, and then I made the decision, you know, after being proselytized to by all of my friends who said, you know, you got to do it. So what were you doing musically at that point? What, I was what playing, you playing four hours a day. Teaching? My grades were going down. My life was falling apart. My parents were looking at this going like, oh, my God, he got a D in math, you know, and, and no support from them. You know, they, they, you know, they loved the idea when I first started playing guitar that, I, that their eight-year-old kid could sit down and do, you know, an hour and a half of all the folk songs. I was like a Pete Seeger. I was like a robot. You just turn a crank and I, and I would go. This happened over and over again. So performing and, and learning songs was a clear path. It was self-motivated, uh, uh, regardless of my consciousness of it. It was like, oh, God, I want to do it. I want to do it. I want to do it, you know. And then I want to do it today. I want to do it tomorrow. But I wasn't thinking like, oh, when I move out, I want to do it and buy, you know, a house doing it. And I didn't, you know, have that kind of confidence. But anyway, so your original question was, how did the songwriting hit? So I, uh, my friend Jay, who had written these beautiful songs, I, he, the night he played me these songs, I said, I want to be part of this. How can I help? And that was always my attitude. How, you know, when I saw somebody who had something, like, I, I, it wasn't so, I want to get in on your thing. It was like, how, how can I help? He goes, well, you know, I, I got this band. And I said, well, let me check them out. And I think we're not up to snuff. Not horrible, just not right. And I was working with Chris Pinnock, who eventually ended up with, these are all like kids, right? We're all like teenage kids, but it was Chris Pinnock who ended up with Chicago, Mark Sanders, who ended up with Tower of Power and the Jackson 5, David Edelstein, who ended up with, he was a brilliant, brilliant, insecure bass player, the greatest guy. And um, musicians like that, you know? And so I put a band together for him, and we started rehearsing the songs. We went into the studio, spent about a year and a half, almost two years, did showcases. He gets a deal. He fires all of us. Now, I don't think it was his fault, but he had at that point been managed. He had gotten a manager, Joel Cohen, who was managing Steely Dan on all the first records. We'd go down, and, you know, he'd been, me, he took me as a sort of a client because he saw the dominant force I'm having over the product, you know, and he knew that I was helpful, you know. Good, not a bad guy. Uh, took us to see uh, uh, Steely Dan recording in, in uh, Ocean Way. I, I did a radio thing, you know, live thing. We saw Michael McDonald's and, you know, uh, with Steely Dan. I actually saw Michael McDonald at one of our showcases when he first got to town, you know. So. The whole thing was rich soup of great primary exposure to, you know, the in initial stages of so much talent at the time. You know, so that was all great. And then I think what happened is when he got ready to go on tour, uh, he said, I think you need seasoned road musicians. And it was, you know, not inaccurate. Uh, but in this case, it was a disaster because we loved Jay and we had his back. 
and it was those guys I just mentioned. So these weren't slums, you know. They were like good. We were good guys, and we'd done all the. He got signed off the demos we played on. I have to ask, how was it that you surrounded yourself, and I presume you included, with such great musicians? Like, how does that happen at a young age, where you're working with potentially top-notch musicians in the future? I was in L.A., and talent rose. Now, everybody always says, man, you were great, and I go, I can only remember the crappiest stuff I played tonight. I have this constant uh, filter that, you know filters out what I did well and you know because one clam and I'm the gig's horrible and I'm no longer like that but I used to be but uh but objectively you know I was singing I had Leon Roth I had a I had a couple of gears I had really worked I was a good uh, a big Stevie Wonder fan so I learned all the Stevie Wonder shit I was a big Donny Hathaway fan so I learned all of that stuff learned those songs I basically took myself to school and learned all of the killerest stuff and I could reproduce it, and I could build on it, and I had my own way of doing it. But does that make you a good musician? Like it, it makes you, it makes you a better musician than just learning stuff in school, right? You know, and everybody else was the same way. We we had found each other through the that uh, you know it's like physics, you know, uh, the gravitational pull of of heavenly bodies forming a solar system that you know we were orbiting around the same goals people of like mind, you know, and it just turned out that, you know, prominent musicians of note fell together. Did you know you were good? I did know I was good, but I didn't know if I was good enough. So I have a, a, uh, but again, I, I, there's a reason for my insecurity and I've spent the rest of my life trying to compensate for it, you know, because it's, uh, hasn't held me back to a certain extent, you know. Uh, the world's full of really great musicians who are really insecure. Uh, um, when but, this happened, when you were kicked off the band, I mean, this is a story that's been repeated hundreds, thousands. You're, you know the story already? <laughs> no, 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 but I mean, people working towards a goal of doing a record and all of a sudden the band gets asked to Well, leave. you know... Uh, I mean, it's a classic story because this uh, the uh, initial disaster pr uh, produces uh, an ultimately positive effect. But how did you feel when that happened? I because this is your I'll introduction you. to music, right? That's okay. the music business. Well, okay, so you know, I'll pick up the story here. So um, we are all kind of shocked, and uh, I. Uh, you know, had uh, made plans to spend the summer, you know, w w working with Jay on the record and then uh, going to, and then we were going to go on tour. We saw the band, too. It was not as good as us. They were great, great musicians. Just, you know, it's very easy for, for uh, management to uh, not recognize uh, the stellarness of an organic situation that has formed on its own volition. And one of the worst examples is when uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan's manager said, you should dump Double Trouble and just, you know, hire guys. Like, that's going to sound better, you know. I mean, <laughs> right. it's like, you know, it's, it's crazy. So, uh, so we all had our kind of, we, uh, we all, we all kind of, you know, uh, 
retreated to our, our caves, <laughs> and I, I basically, uh, you know, was just, uh, now what? The first thought I had after I had a week of basic, like, I just, you know, went to bed and never came out. It's like that scene in Singles where the guy, you know, breaks up with the girl and then he just won't leave the apartment. And finally, he, you know, when somebody comes and says, oh, my God, there's boxes. All. I mean, it was just McDonald's over the place. You know, I was, I hadn't, I just was really depressed, you know. Two years of my life down the drain, I thought, you know. But. But within a week, I had this thought, I'm going to fucking write songs. Because I realized that the primary thing that had motivated this whole situation was I had seen this, this repertoire of songs this guy had written, and I was not a songwriter. So clearly, the solution to the problem was I should be a songwriter. Because the songwriter turns out to be the king. That was my line. The songwriter is king. And the funny thing about it is it's a promotion you can give yourself because you don't work for a corporation. You're not waiting. You just promote yourself. Today I am a songwriter. Here we go. I sat it so I had this piano in this one-room apartment I had, and I had a cassette machine and a whole bunch of paper, and I sat down, and it was like waiting for the doorbell to ring. You know, you know just go out and find a friend, okay? You don't have to wait for the doorbell to ring, right? You got to go out there. Nothing. I mean, I had ideas, but I was having trouble you know, knowing what to do with them. What kind of songwriter would you, were you hoping to be? Any kind of music in particular? I, uh, remember, I was a lover of the greatest artists, and I had delved into, again, Stevie Wonder, The Beatles, all of that. I had great references, and I knew the music as a player. I knew the music. I could play and sing. And by the way, when I sang a Beatles song, you know, I, you know, because I was a Stevie Wonder guy, I would play the music the way the Beatles wrote it. But I'd sing it like Stevie Wonder, and I'd play it a little bit like Ray Charles. I, I had, to, I was developing a rearrangement. I was, I could. My, my love was to make a song my own. And when you can take a cover and you can make it your own, the motivation to write your own song is zero because you are being creative. You're reharming it. You're changing it. You know, you're delving into possibilities and looking at material as a fallow ground for your own creativity without the responsibility, you know, of writing it. So that's very satisfying. And most people write because they can't imagine doing something so audacious to a song they didn't write. Because, but I don't, I don't, know, I don't look at the way a song was done as the song. The song is the lyrics and the melody, chords, and sometimes not even the chords. So I'd already developed that consciousness. So when I sat down to write, I thought, this is going to be a piece of cake. I know 600 songs. Now here's what I found out. My wife said it best when I told her, turns out I'm sitting there and I'm going, wait a minute, okay, well, this song's kind of like, you know, uh, whatever, you know, like, a, let it be, you know, it's, it's a ballad, but, okay, now, so, what exactly, how do they do that? She said, oh, well, that's like, just because, just because you're a great race car driver, and you're, you really are a great driver, or you're an okay driver, but just because you can drive a car doesn't mean you can go in the garage and build a car. Right. There's nothing about driving a car 
that relates to constructing a car from the ground up. And there's nothing about playing a song. You could go in, you could sit in the club, you can play all night. Everybody goes, you're so talented. And they might not think, because you changed one of the songs a little bit, they go, did you write that third song? <laughs> no, that's an Elton John song, right? So that's pretty good. Nothing about that, in my experience, prepares you to write a really good song. And, uh, but I was on my way to discovering that. Uh, so about a week into, or a week and a half into writing, trying to write and getting nowhere, getting I was nowhere falling. as in couldn't write a thing or wrote stuff that wasn't very good? No, I couldn't finish. I, was, I had great ideas. I just didn't know how to finish. And this is a very common problem. Uh, how do you take your ideas, you have great ideas, but how do you structure them? I just, you know, was really I was continually depressed and I was sleeping all day. And when I say that, I mean, I would fall asleep at the piano. Then I'd wake up and I'd start to play again. And, you know, uh, words, music, I knew that I could do both. I knew because I'm a, a wordsmith, I knew I could write lyrics. I knew I could write music but it wasn't coming together, and I was increasingly more despondent over it. So at the time I was living in this apartment, my mother would check in on me because I had only just moved out. So I was right at, at the beginning of my 20s. And uh, she heard you know, this sort of groggy voice day after day and commented on her friends, I don't know what he's going I think he's on hard drugs. <laughs> I'm so, because everybody's taking drugs. Kids are taking drugs, you know. I don't take drugs. I take music, but, you know, it's kind of the same thing. You're exhausted. You're like, you know, you have music, and you're like, oh, God, that was great. So she uh, was absolutely out of her mind with, you know, uh, worry. I've told this story before, but it's basically the origin story of a Marvel superhero. So... Um, Right around that time, Marvin Hamlish was on TV all the time because he had just won two Academy Awards, first time that happened, for the underscore of The Sting, where he wrote that Scott Jop Joplin arrangement. Right? But then the same guy turned around and wrote, Memories like the corners of my mind, misty watercolored memories of the way... We were, oh, it won Academy Award. He was on every talk show. And he was this glib, articulate guy. Does it remind you of anybody you know? Well, it reminded my mom of, my God, he's just like Jeff. My God, he's a guy Jeff should talk to. And after the Mike Douglas show and the Johnny Carson show and the Dick Cavett show, she had so much, she was so full of Marvin Hamlish that the next morning she picked up the phone book in Los Angeles and looked under M Hamlish. And she could not find a, Mar a, a Marvin Hamlish, so she just went to the first Hamlish she could find. It was, I think, Adele. And dialed the number. And this uh, woman, Israeli accent, hello? <laughs> And she poured out the story. My son's a musician. Uh, no, first she said, uh, is this Marvin Hamlish's house? She goes, no, it's not. 
And then she was really embarrassed, and she said, I'm sorry, ma'am, I'm just, I, I apologize, I'll, I'll let you go. She goes, wait, I'm his mother. <laughs> she goes, you're Marvin Hamilton? Yes. Uh, you know, uh, he lives in New York, but he's in, because it was just the Academy Awards, he's in all these, you know, so he's had a place in Los Angeles, and he's in town. Anyway, the two of them hit it off. And they talk, and she goes, Marvin went to Juilliard, and, well, my son is really talented, but we don't know what, his dad's a dentist, I'm a housewife, we don't know anything about the music business. She goes, anyway, the upshot is, is Adele says, I think that was her name, I could be wrong, but she says, I'm going to have Marvin call you back. <laughs> so Marvin calls my, my mother back, and the next thing I know, I'm getting a call from my mother saying, listen, I don't get mad at me, but Marvin Hamlish is going to call you. I said, what did you do? <laughs> so, you know, you can make up whatever you want. I threw some cold water on my face, and sure enough, about 45 minutes later, I get this call from Marvin Hamlish. Hello, Jeff, this is Marvin Hamlish. Your mother told me to call you. <laughs> and I said, man, you do not have to do this. This is so bad. He goes, you know, Jeff, I've got a mother, too. And Mothers are smarter than you think. So what are you doing with your music? Now, Marvin Hamlish wrote The Way We Were, which is a, the most, uh, the, one of the greatest songs about nostalgia ever written. And 30 years later, when I talked to him about all this, he was not very nostalgic at all. You know, he was a whole other guy. Maybe it's 40 years later. He's a very here and now guy. But that day, he was you know, to me, what uh, Oscar Hammerstein was to um, that, that, uh, the guy who uh, wrote uh, The Baker's Wife, uh, Stephen Sondheim. If you know anything about Stephen Sondheim, he's a songwriter. He's a, uh, one of the greatest. One of the greatest. And uh, he was mentored by Oscar Hammerstein for seven years. But he said in an interview, he says, you know, even if it hadn't been seven years, that first three hours was what really put it all together for me. The rest was, it was important, but not nearly as important. If all I had was three hours, I still, it still would have worked. And I know that's true because I had two hours with Marvin and we never spoke again for 40 years. But in it, he explored all the things that I could possibly do musically, going on the road, being a session musician. He goes, you don't read, sight read that well. He goes, Jeff, I went to Juilliard. What about songwriting? I said, okay, well, you know, this thing kind of stumbled through my story of betrayal. Said, I'm sorry about this. You know, I, I, I love Jay, and we're still, you know, we haven't talked for a while. But, but, it, but it, was, it was the the, the knock on the head I needed, I guess. I so, so he said, okay, that's good. How many songs have you finished? I went, he goes, you know. None? I go, and I got some things dirty. He goes, oh boy. <laughs> well, he'd, he, just, he just brushed aside studio musician, and he said, you don't want to be on the road for the rest of your life like my dad. It's not a great life. So we get the songwriting, and he's kind of like, well, I go, oh, not that too. He goes, no, 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 you're a songwriter. You're just a songwriter that doesn't write. <laughs> I said, well, how many songs have you written? He goes, I write two songs a week. A fast one and a slow one. Now, we talk about a bunch of stuff after that. Uh, I think I said, you write lyrics? He goes, no, 
I'm the worst lyricist, Jeff. So I married Carol, Carol Bayer Sager, who is a great lyricist, and you know I rely on that. I said the stuff I write is so hackneyed and crappy, but two finished pieces. I said so if I wrote one finished song plus lyrics, that'd be sort of what you would do if you were. He goes, I don't care if you write like ten or nine or you know whatever, man. But just try to finish one a week, then yeah, one a week with lyrics, yeah. Be better if it was two. He was really pushing me, and. We talked a little about his dad and about the rest of the stuff. And uh, that was it. We but hung it was up. more about the act of doing as opposed to teaching you how to write. This is the point. Finishing is the absolute pinnacle of the, of, of the necessities as a songwriter. Finishing. And to make it even more poignant... I recently was exploring the master classes because I wanted everybody to tell me I need to write books and I need to write stories and I, you know, I'm a good writer. And, you know. uh, and uh, Joyce Carol Oates, who is a great author, is one of the people who does the master classes. Well, I was never inspired to sign up for master class until I heard her description. She goes, here in my master class, we're going to focus on short stories because they can be finished quickly. And finishing is very important. Anyway, all of the same rhetoric. So those are bookend experiences. One, when I was 68 years old, I'm 70 now, but a couple of years ago I saw this Joyce Carol Oates thing and I went, oh my God, it's Marvin telling me this is exactly how I'm going to matriculate from songwriting to story writing. You write a short piece, right? And songs are by nature short pieces. So of course you can finish a song quickly. Except you have to, and this is what I realized. After about two weeks of not finishing songs, I was like, I'm still not, I'm still not finishing. Because you're sitting there with these ideas hoping they'll fall together. But if you're going to finish, if you're going to do, if you're going to put out product um, prolifically, whether it's, you know, making guitars or whatever, you're going to need a method. And you're going to need... Uh, several models to hang your ideas on and this was the talk I had with myself I said I need a method to finish two I'm going to have to shit I went to my record collection I pulled down all my records I got a legal pad I got my record player out and for the next two weeks I took all the music that I thought I knew because I'd performed so many times and I said, I have to look at this from a songwriting point and not from a performing point. Performing is not the same part of the brain as creating from scratch. And I've tried to explain to people about this and how necessary it is. And I said, I'm just going to end up copying these. I said, no, you won't. No, you won't. And it turns out now this is exactly how Pat Patterson put the Berkeley School of Music songwriting department together because they didn't really have one. But he was a lyricist. And that's another story for this interview. Anyway, at the time I looked at it like, uh, oh, you're writing music and then putting lyrics to the music or whatever. So I pulled down all these records and I started counting bars, intro. And I started, I knew the parts, so I would write, okay, begin of the song, intro, and I would write down the number of bars before the vocal came in. And I would write down the number of bars of the verses and I would write the lyrics, and I created these sheets, these structural, contentful 
with structure attached. Uh, uh, in other words, are related to the content of the song uh, through the prism of the structure. And I began to see that the structure is the bones of the song. Uh, just like um, if you're going to build a car, and you're going to build a car from the ground up, you are nonetheless going to have elements that are common to all cars. You're going to have four tires. You're going to have a unibody chassis. You're going to have an internal combustion engine back in the 70s, right? You're going to have two doors or four doors. You're going to have an electrical. You know, by the time you get to the required stuff, how different is your song, uh, is your car from another car? And yet they are different. Mm -hmm. And that's for every artist to perceive. Every sees, everybody sees a half empty or full glass in terms of this approach to songwriting. But I wanted songs that could compete with the other songs that I heard on the radio. And they all had verses, and they all had courses, they all had intros. And the length of time they spent on each, as I began, I got to the 25th, I got to the 30th song, the commonality between structural models was so striking that I was like, um, it was a moment of liberation and realization that was, was absolutely one of the most freeing moments. And I went, this is great. Identifying what your idea is in terms of the overall thing. Is it a, is it a starting point of a verse? You've got a line. Is it a, is it a title? Is it a hook? Or is it leading up to the hook? And being able to identify the part of the song that your unconscious is spewing uh, that's that's songwriting. Not creating a new model that nobody's ever heard before. Having an idea of what the overall thing is going to be, which is you're going to have a verse that opens up the story and sets, sets the scene and talks about what's going on. So all of these lessons were um, unambiguously delivered through my going back to my records and now deconstructing them. Not once, not twice, but maybe 30 to 50. I spent two weeks, hours and hours each day, because I couldn't believe it. When I, you get to the fourth one, you're thinking, okay, well, these ones are alike, but are they all alike? And it's, it's, they, all, they are all, and still, even these uh, slightly more random structured songs that are com coming out today, like the Billie Eilish stuff, you know, don't be fooled. They still end up being story and, and then refrain. That's the story and then the chorus. In other words, you, your chorus is the moral or the, or the theme of the thing, you know, that's where you pull it all together. And you do it in a way where people want to sing along. And uh, so that's the process I went through to go from no finishing to, I think that first, uh, when I first realized uh, that I was going to have to have a method, I, I, maybe I got to the 10th record and I would do every single song and I would chat, I, I wish I'd saved all my notes. They became more and more articulate in terms of being able to quickly see, you know, some songs start off with the chorus as the intro and then drop into the verse. Sometimes they would play the chorus music with a little lick and drop into the verse. That way you didn't give away the chorus. At what point did you think you could, you were a decent songwriter? Okay, 
So the transition is this. Um, I got to about the 10th evaluation and I had been working on something and then all of a sudden I went, shit, I know what to do. And I went to the piano and I finished the song. I finished the song in one week. Do you remember that song? I, 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 I don't remember. Okay. I don't remember, but through the... Um, through my, my self-training, I realized, uh, I, I applied structural uh, organization to my ideas, and I, and I finished the following week, I finished another song. Fourth week, I'd finished, I'd four songs in a month. The following month, uh, I think, uh, almost finished two songs. The second week, I finished two songs. And I, that lasted for another three And then I finally got it to where I was finishing two songs. I became prolific. Matter of fact, I became super prolific because in those days, everybody was kind of like, well, you know, it comes when it comes. And I was like, uh-uh. But at point, what point do you think this is a good song? Like, out of those songs that you finished? It's funny. I didn't, I didn't look at it like, uh, because remember, the aesthetic was this. You have good ideas or you have bad ideas. And if you have good ideas and you finish the song, you can't finish. For me, because I was looking at it like the problem isn't whether the ideas are good or bad. The ideas are, uh, the idea is, did you, did you put them in an organizational way that maximizes their, right? So the implication of what happened with Marvin Hamlish and me was he said, be, you know, I finish two songs a week. Now, I, if I said, are they good? He'd say, yeah, they're good. But what he wouldn't say is, they're good because I wrote them and they're finished. So he would just say, like, they're finished. Because a fantastic half-finished song is a piece of shit compared to a piece of shit that's finished. <laughs> and that's my motto. Because uh, we all have different ways of, of judging things. Right. You know? Um, you know, for instance, um, Bridge Over Troubled Water is a fantastic song, right? And, uh, and then um, you look at the song, you know, uh, Money by Holland Dozier Holland. Bad things are life and free. And then you look at the comparative sales. And probably equal. So which one is better? You know, there's, a, there's another thing to this. This was my, I had now decided that this was going to be, Marvin Hamlish had explained to me that if your financial future is of any concern to you, you might want to concentrate on songwriting, take a lot of pressure off the playing, your playing could come along on its own without you being financially dependent on it. Ironically, I still ended up being financially dependent on my playing and it started to pay off, but the songwriting bought my house. So, um, you know, there's, uh, there's not a lot of profit to judging yourself in general in life. It's actually like functioning and producing. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. Finishing is the secret to all the rest of the doors opening. Because if you write enough songs a week and you write enough songs a year, Statistically speaking, you know, that muscle is going to grow and grow and you're going to get better and better. And pretty soon, every single one of your songs is going to be coverable. 
I had a discussion recently with somebody who said, why is it that certain musicians have had a string of hits in their youth from a certain age to a certain age, and then since then they haven't had hits? And I realized hits are a different thing altogether because that doesn't really necessarily judge a song in a proper way because there's more to it than a hit. But as somebody who's a songwriter, do you think you're a better songwriter now than you've ever been? I do. And, and, and does youth come into it at all? Or, like, what's the significance of being young and writing songs versus being more mature and writing songs? Well, there's all kinds of issues about contemporaneousness, you know, being contemporary. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, um, we don't like to recognize the obsolescent qualities or the obsolescence is a big bucket in which you can dump any number of phenomenon in life. What's going on culturally with your, uh, what do they call the uh, certain generations? They call that the uh, demographic, right. right? What demographic are you playing to? You know, um, so if you're looking to sell records to young people and you're 70 years old, I'm 70 years old, there are certain, pretend, you, could, you could kind of do it, maybe. It would be kind of tough because, you know, uh, the references, did you ever see that movie Idiocracy? No. You didn't see Idiocracy? No. It's one of the greatest uh, commentaries on, on uh, paradigm shift of the, the guy wakes up 500 years in the future, you know, by accident. He's been, you know, in hypersleep. It's Luke um, Wilson, is an actor. You really should do it, everybody. You need to see Idiocracy because besides the political content, it basically, he's, he's not super smart, but compared to the people in the future, because society is dumbed down to a degree that it's just, you know, I'm not saying that's what's going on. Could go the other way, too, you know. Um, but... Um, Luke says, you know, um, he says something that just sounds normal the way we talk. And uh, Dak, uh, uh, I can't remember his name, the actor who was in, in uh, Zathura, who played the, he says, uh, he's his lawyer. He's this dumb lawyer guy. And he says, after Luke finishes explaining something, he's like, are you gay? You sound gay. Because he's, he's, speaking with some articulation and some sensitivity. So my point is, is that, is that there's a disconnect that you're not going to be able to get around unless you make it your business to get around it. Now, a lot of old guys find beards. You know what those are? That's, in other words, uh, they'll find a younger guy to partner up with. And that guy will you know, bridge the gap between the... He needs an old pro to work with. And the old pro needs the younger guy's hipness and contemporaneous. So that's a way around it, too. But at the time, at the time I was getting a, a serious amount of activity with my catalog, I was definitely immersed in the time, and I was appropriate for the time, and I knew the rules, and I knew what I could get away with if I wanted to go a little bit far afield. That was my fun thing, was to slip in really hip stuff. But, so is this the time when we're talking about more the hard 
heavy metal rock? Well, you got to remember when I first started writing, it was disco era. And I wrote R&B. I was always, a, you know, I had gone from folk to, to rock in the 60s, just like we all did. But it was like, you know, 60s rock. And then uh, in the 70s, uh, with FM radio, things got a little more creative. But then it, it dropped into, into dance music. The 70s was like the 60s in terms of sexual, you know, promiscuity, except that now it was on the dance floor with really, you know, more flamboyant, you know, clothes or something. A lot of dancing. And uh, I remember Jay, my buddy, saying, like, God, all they want is disco, disco, disco. And I started listening to it, and I realized there was an opportunity to channel all of my love of Motown and Memphis Soul, but just, again, put different tires on the vehicle. Right? You can still, even Johnny Taylor did a disco song. So my point was I, I, I was a guy who was a Cream Hendrix guitar player and loved those songs and had bands that did those songs in the 60s. And then uh, in the 70s when I decided to become a songwriter, I had matriculated to, uh, uh, I went straight uh, uh, Motown and, and uh, Stevie and Temptations and I wanted to write like that and I did. My first cover was Tower of Power, and my next cover is for Jeffrey Osborne. And I was signed to Almo Irving as an R&B songwriter. You know, uh, what happened is disco crashed with the burning of the disco records at the end of the 70s, and then 1980 dawned, and nobody knew what was going to come. I mean, all these labels, Casablanca, RSO, all the disco labels, Prelude that I'd had a record on my own, all crashed, all went out of business. It was Black Friday for two weeks. And we landed in the 80s, nobody knew it was gonna happen. Then Elvis Costello came out, The Clash came out, Haircut 100 came out, we thought it was gonna be another British invasion of uh, punk and new wave, the Go-Go's, right? You know? Ding, 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 ding. So, and the what cars are you doing at this point? At that, point, staff staff, at that point, I had been signed to a label with my buddy Kenny Lee Lewis, Larry Lingle, and Mike Lingle. We had a band called Pieces. And we had come out with like Pablo Cruz style music, came out of the disco thing, and it was R&B with a little bit of rock. Really creative, great band, great musicians. Um, put out one record, got dropped, but I'd been signed to a publishing deal. Well, I had started as a songwriter at that point, so I... Uh, and then I started getting covers, like lots of covers. But it was all still post-disco pop and uh, so... So by this time you're thinking, I'm a good songwriter. Yeah, I, I you know, again, uh, yeah, I had no doubts about my ability as a songwriter, uh, partially because I was quick and I knew structure and I knew how to apply all kinds of different um, aesthetics to the song and I was I was a good singer and I could make great demos and I could you know it was like I was a you know and I was writing everything by myself which is very unusual I was not a collaborator as a matter of fact I had to learn how to collaborate because I had just grown up alone in a room hacking away and I once again I, alone I, in a room. I became extremely self-reliant you know I had populated my brain. My collaborators were Stevie Wonder, you know, showed me structure. The Beatles showed me structure, you know. 
So tell, tell me how that worked as a, as a hired gun songwriter. You go in, do you go into the office? Is there an office? Do you stay at home? So this is interesting. Because I was just moving, I, I spent my 20s studying songwriting and writing, 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 writing. But I didn't know how to get the songs to people. I was a hothouse flower. I was not a good network, never have been. Never bothered me. I was doing regular gigs, going on the road, and I was just trying to get better and better and better. And I was going to make the determination when it was time. So I was jamming with my friends, and one of my buddies, Mark Sanders, who was in the Jay Gruska band, was now playing with the Jackson Five. And he, before he did, uh, I'm sorry, before he did that, he did Marilyn Scott, who was a very well-known uh, jazz singer now, who was starting out back then. She was on Atlantic Records, and. He comes over to my house. He goes, remember that stuff we were jamming on last week? You had that one song? I said, you made me believe? He goes, yeah. He goes, man, give me a copy of that. I go, I still haven't finished the lyrics. He goes, well, just, you got a copy? I go, no. He goes, well, here. He pulls up a cassette machine. He puts it on my piano. He goes, hey, man, play it. I'm going to take it to Marilyn Scott. I go, man, I can't just sit down and play it on piano unless you're playing drums. And he goes, he puts, he play, I said, he puts the thing on that. He goes, let's go. <laughs> I go, okay. So I play the song. I said, and then I stopped. He goes like, pick it up where you left off. I go, okay. So we finished the song. I lala my way for the one verse that I hadn't finished. He goes, great, I'll call you later. He calls me back the next day. He goes, you're on the record. She loves it. Now, I would have never had that cover. Uh, nothing would have ever happened to me if it wasn't for my friends. They came to me and So this forced is the first me. one? Yeah, that's the first one. Wow. I, didn't hit the, I didn't hit the sidewalk with my, you know, my Horatio Alger. I have a very limited uh, capability. It is just literally, you got to sling a hook and friggin' like yank me out of the jungle. Otherwise, I'll just, gra you know, I'll just explore, be in this blissful state. I'm a dreamy guy. So, so then I got excited and, uh, you know, wrote more songs and uh, nothing more happened. I went out with Dan Fogelberg, you know, and Bill Withers and worked on records, big records, and, you know. You know, so, supposedly my supposedly my my playing ability, my reading ability was going to negatively impact my income, but I was I was really paying my rent with that. Then my friend Kenny Lewis, who who has called me over the years for anything that you know that he that he got, he would he would call me. Come on, you got to do this. You got to do this. You got to do this. So my whole career is is is. Uh, Kenny would pull me out of my house and make me do shit that I was, I just want to do this, you know. Well, you're doing this. And Mark Sanders was the same way. He goes, I'm taking this song whether you like it or not, you know. And God bless him. And Kenny, I have a career because he got me into this band, Pieces, and I wrote songs for Pieces. In other words, if you put me in a situation, I would just like, I was like a, you know, a, like a, you know, some kind of animal that would like start looking for the gold, you know, in myself. And, uh, and we got a deal. And when we got the deal, we were also approached by a publisher. And I'm like, what's a publisher? <laughs> I didn't even know what a term cover meant, you know. I mean, I had gotten the cover, but we didn't call it. We just called it, she's going to do your song. 
while we're getting ready to do our record, I had this song that I'd written, and the uh, manager of the band says, uh, Tower of Power wants to record your song. And I went, you're kidding. I love Tower of Power. And uh, so that was my first recognizable cover. And, uh, I can, and I wrote all this stuff by myself. So then the band breaks up, and the publisher resigns me, and I'm still writing by myself. And then we get Jeff Osborne covers. Well, Jeff Osborne works for A&M Records. He records for A&M Records. He's signed to A&M Records. At the end of that year, my publisher hadn't been doing that well, and he was not able to pick up my next option for the money. He's, but we had gotten something like, like 10 covers by then. I knew what a cover was by then, you know gotten all these little records and all this stuff and everybody was going like man that guy Jeff Paris Evan Archard is really getting a lot of covers with him it's great you know but then all of a sudden so how does that work it, it happens because you, you the publisher's publish job is to go to A&R guys and producers and present your stuff perfect for me because I don't have the network ability to I you know I, I don't have enough time I'm so exhausted after I finish a song remember I'm writing by myself so it's not like, oh, I just go in there and I write a couple of chords or something like that. The two other guys finish the song. And then I, that's a way to, you know, do it too. So, you know, you see, anything I was involved with was just me. I didn't realize the value of that or that that was anything different than anybody else did until I started looking at Earth, Wind, and Fire songs. It had six writers on it. And I went, God, I should do that. It'd be less, I'd have to spend less time. I could do more songs in one week. So... Um, the publisher goes to meetings and Evan was insane. Evan would sit in the office for two hours to see Clive Davis or whatever, you know. He would undergo the most humiliating treatment because these guys were all full of themselves and they would leave you sitting in the office for hours and he would just do it and he got me covers. But it speaks to your songwriting ability that you would get. At the end of the, you know, the long sit, we're going in and then getting the cover, you know. That was good for him, too. The next time he sat in the office, I guarantee it wasn't three hours. So we were a good team, but he couldn't pick up my option for the money. And it wasn't that much, you know, in publishing deals, it turns out. That was medium. So, um, I, you know, he said, I'd love to continue with you, but we'd have to, you'd, have, you'd have to accept less money. I go... And I'm willing to do that, but let me explore my options. So I went to my lawyer, who happened to be Peter Paterno, before he ran Hollywood Records. Absolutely one of the greatest guys. Never bullshitted and was this really easy guy to hang with. A great hang. Just a, a really lovable guy who was a fantastic, fantastic, on the side of the artist lawyer. And... He made some calls. The next thing I know, MCA wants me, and Almo's interested. Um, and the way I got to Almo was Jeffrey Osborne. I called him up. I said, man, you know that white-haired guy that you took me to meet? Because we were writing together. Uh, he goes, Lance Freed. I go, yeah, yeah. Do you think you could arrange a meeting with me? He goes, yeah. So he took me over. So I thought Lance Freed was of like a, just one of their song pluggers. I didn't know he ran. He was a son of Alan Freed, the king of rock and roll, the big, right? And, and he's the son, and he runs the company. And he never, he doesn't, he's not one of the 
the product managers. He oversees it. But by asking my, innocently asking my, my, my friend Jeff, you know, because he'd been over to my stupid little apartment, we'd written songs together, and it was, you know, it was very sweet. And he'd recorded two of my songs on his first record, cut one, side one. I had the opening track of his very first record. So I was like, can you, he goes, yeah, come on, I'll, you know, meet me in the parking lot. I meet him in the parking lot. He goes, come on, man. And we walk in, and everybody's looking at me, and I go in, and I meet, and he goes, and, and uh, so uh, um, Lance, really, really friendly guy, and he goes, really like your stuff, and, you know, um, uh, but, you know, Evan Archard, we're all friends, and I'd hate to get in the, in the middle of something if you haven't resolved I go, no, no, I'm, I, I'm ready to move on. And I said, I, I, you know, I could use, you know, I can use a little more money. I said, but I really want to be with a, you know. And uh, didn't know that what would eventually happen when I was signed over there is Lance, I, I, I said, so who do I go to with my new songs? He goes, me. And everybody was like, no. That's not who you go to. You go to one of our projects. Like he, but he wanted to run, he wanted to get back to songs and he had in me this kind of innocent guy who didn't really know anything. So when I wrote new songs, I would go to the president of the company and he would go like, how come this is here? I go, because, and I'd have these like really intense, I go, that's a crappy idea, Lance. Because I just didn't, I thought somebody else was that president of the company. Finally, I find out from his secretary, he goes, Nancy, Lance is going to be in town for two weeks. He's, you know, the president. And I go, he is? He goes, yeah. I said, well, how come I'm with you? He just really likes you. <laughs> but we've got this other guy, Alan Ryder. And he's great. And boy, was he a big personality guy. So the uh, whole experience was of being signed to a larger company and being part of that was a mind-blower because they expect you to collaborate with the other writers, and I didn't know how to collaborate. I was very possessive, and if I didn't like your idea, my thing would be like, I don't like that idea. And the, you know, finally somebody like got mad at me and yelled at me. I said, what are you yelling at me for? He said, because you don't have an idea for that part, but you just shot my idea. I mean, this is 101, right? But I had done all of my work learning how to write songs, and a lot of guys hadn't done that. They had their own way of putting it together, kind of like mine, but I had made my business of having this insane catalog of, of models and structures, and I could say, let's do this, it worked in this song, we can do it in our song, because ours are similar. And I know just enough how to make a difference so it's not copying. At this point, what's happening with your solo career? All right, so that's, I'll get to that as soon as I can. But uh, just to close the book on, on, uh, on collaboration, uh, collaboration is a completely different experience than writing by yourself because it's give and take. I don't have any brothers and sisters, so I didn't know the first thing about give and take. Just it was just like, that sucks. Concept. That's the way I talked. Like, oh, come on, man. Well, we, uh, well, you know, you know what? Here's the thing. Let's just stop. I'll go home and I'll figure it out for myself. And I still get balled out for running, running away with the song. Because once I'm alone and I go into my fucking, you know, uh, uh, flow state, I mean, you know, I'm a conflicted, injured soul, but when I sit down to write a song, I get quiet, 
and I've built that conduit. It's just a giant door that opens. Up comes the ideas, and I just write them down. And, uh, but when you collaborate, you got to hold back. It's a group situation. It's a completely different dynamic. I'm woefully not experienced in that, so I've had to learn it secondhand. And this guy, we never wrote again, but he yelled at me. He says, when you sit down with somebody and you're writing with somebody and you're looking at the first verse and you see he comes up with a line, if you don't have a line, you write that line down because you can always come back and change it later if you got. I said, but then the next five lines will be based on that line. He goes, doesn't matter, Jeff. See, that's where you're fucking. I'm not going to fight. So I slept on it. And the next morning I got a call from my publisher who was now Alan Ryder. I it was still Lance Freed because his secretary called me and said, uh, Average white band, Alan Gorey, is making a solo record. He wants to come in and write with some of our writers. You want to come in noon? I go, yes. And I said, I'm going to prove to this Lord above that I'm a good collaborator. So we sit down, and we have this great talk. And I said, I love your voice. You got, you got the, you're like Sam and Dave, you and Hamish, and you got the husky voice, my favorite. He goes, yeah, yeah, great. He says, well, let's, let's get going. I said, well, hold on. I said... You know, I just got signed here, and I've been like a solo songwriter my whole life, and and so I'm just you know getting that, getting my chops up with collaboration. So, if I start getting possessive, or if I you know get out of hand, man, just call me on it. You know, just, just you know, like. He goes, okay. <laughs> so we we start writing, and it's really going great. And then I start getting. He goes, the line from. War Games with Matthew Broderick. He goes, in this great English, he goes like, you know, mate, uh, remember that thing uh, that you do that you wanted me to tell you not to do? I go, yeah. He goes, you're doing it now. <laughs> I went, oh, Jesus. I went, and we had a big laugh over it. I went, I said, see, I'm so glad I told you about this. He goes, and it turned into one of the these moments when we got even closer together, it was just great, you know. You know, it's always better to reveal than to conceal. Everything goes better. We finished, and for the first time in my life, I finished a song not in one week. I finished a song in one day. And I went, man, now was it the greatest song I've ever written? No, but it was, it was finished. And he recorded it. Is you know? that the end goal, like, as a songwriter? Is it, is it, does it not have to be great because great is so subjective It's that somebody would record it? You can't control the quality of what it is you're doing by putting more and more and more time into it. I don't believe that. I used to believe that. Like, you know, it's like sometimes, yeah, you know. I mean, it's like, it's, it's my, I have to say, yes, my experience showed me that, you know, as I say, don't put off, for tomorrow, what you can do today, it works creatively too. And once you acclimate yourself to it, what you tell your little kid inside who comes up with all these great ideas is like, you know, I mean, obviously if you're tired and you gotta stop, then stop. So I have uh, definitely, and I'm one of these guys that loves instant gratification anyway, you know, so it's sort of like you give yourself permission to, um, Follow the trail of the song all the way to the end, you know, and 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 if and then you you come back, you can always come back for the next three weeks, and challenge yourself to improve it and change it. 
I'm just saying that there's, there's a, you know, there's an advantage to being able to get the ideas flowing and to accept what you're coming up with. But the more you do it, the more the good shit shows up. Now, this idea that you're going to, you know, as soon as the first sign of fatigue comes up, oh, I guess I'm, you know, if you're staring at the page and nothing's coming up. I mean, there's all kinds of ways around that. Never cross out a line, ever. Record everything if you're playing music. And my newest thing is the ultimate bones of the song are the lyrics. I used to be music first, and then I would shoehorn the music in. Um, you know, this is not necessarily for everybody, but lyrics ended up being the most musical and concrete element in the song. As a matter of fact, I always say to my once-in-a-while students, you know, songwriting, well, it's, it's, a, it's a class that can be taught in the music department, or it's a class that can be taught in the English department. I think it might be better if it was taught in the English department because ultimately a song, by my definition, is a, is a story with musical accompaniment. And it's meant to be sung, yes. But it's a story with musical accompaniment and uh, a weak story with fantastic music isn't to me as, as alluring as uh, a great lyric with a beautiful accompaniment, but one that doesn't dominate or take away. In other words, uh, you know, you could listen to the music of, of something, oh, that's nice, and then the guy puts the lyrics over it, and it's like, oh, that's incredible. But you're not supposed to hear, you're not supposed to recite a lyric and think, okay, that's okay. And then you hear the music, oh, now it's incredible. Anywhere, you know, if you go to the museum and you see a beautiful frame, you know, around the Mona Lisa, and then they take the frame, you're like, oh, the Mona Lisa doesn't look. I like the Mona Lisa better with that other frame. This frame killed you. That's just where I've landed, and I love music. I love changes. I love jazz. I play jazz all the time. So I have a very proprietary attitude about what's going on, and it is more in common with like a uh, Paul Williams or a, uh, who wrote uh, MacArthur Park, that great. Jimmy uh, Webb? Jimmy Webb, yeah. Uh, and guys before that, you know. Um, a lot of the famous songs written by, like, uh, you know, Backrack and David, you know, I, I, according to the Piston songwriting, Walter Piston songwriting booklets, um, I think it's Walter Piston, he said that uh, Hal David came in with the lyrics and then they wrote to the lyrics. Now, I can't corroborate that, but he's a pretty well-respected guy. Um, well, let me ask you this, because I'm worried about time. Real briefly, though, I wanted to get back to this idea of what happened uh, in terms of my own career, I think you were asking. So I had this group record deal on United Artists with Kenny and the rest of the band pieces. And then, um, you know, Disco died. We got dropped. And I still had this publishing deal with the little guy who couldn't afford me after a while. And uh, by the time I got to Almo, A&M Records, they finally, you know, put me with a guy who was an actual song plugger instead of the president who I loved hanging with. But he uh, was, uh, his name was Alan Ryder. So it's 1982, and it looks like punk and new wave are dominating. 
and I open the uh, L.A. Times calendar and read about a festival that got put on called the Us Festival by the guy who was a partner of Steve Jobs who started Apple, was Steve Wozniak. He, he cashed out, didn't want to be with Steve Jobs no more. You know, <laughs> too much for him, a nice guy. He's the guy who did the actual building of the, the stuff, you know. And uh, he's the guy who put the concert on. He, he structured it three days. It was punk and new wave, heavy metal and hard rock, and pop. The, the article said that heavy metal and new wave, I'm sorry, heavy metal and melodic rock did twice the revenue of the pop and the new wave day combined. Now, I'm not a, you know, an economics major, but I went, holy shit. That guy just did a consulting for, he just, he just, just ran the election. It's not going to be, I, with clarity that I've never had, I went, hard rock. Because nothing was on the radio. It was, there was, not, it was like Journey and Foreigner. So actually, I think I, Journey and Foreigner were hitting, and the rest was punk and new wave. But I, I called up Alan Ryder, and I said, Alan, we have to have a meeting. I get over there, and I show him the article. Uh, I, I, say, I say, you got any rock acts? I want to write with rock acts. He goes, what are you talking about? He's got this whiskey voice. Man, you're a fucking R&B writer. He's, you know, what, what do you mean rock? I go, look at this. He reads your article and he goes, holy shit. We had like a mind meld. He went, we got a band called Y&T. And let me get a couple of calls. He goes, Lita Ford. She's making a record. I go, get me on both. So... Um, I have a, a songwriting session with Lita Ford, and I had Gotta Let Go started. I finished it with her, and Gotta Let Go ends up on a record. The next thing I know, they fly me up to San Francisco. I basically leaked to A&M Records that the next big thing was going to be melodic hard rock and heavy metal and hard rock and corporate rock. I absolutely, with un unbelievable clarity, said, this is what's happening. And I got, you know, it was like a surfer at a friggin' contest. I got positioned perfectly. So I get flown up to San Francisco. I write this whole record with Y&T, two cuts on Lita Ford. The manager of Lita Ford signs me to a deal because I've got my own demos going at the same time. Now I'm interested in, because I love the music and I grew up playing Cream and Hendrix. So that's how I got signed to Polygram and... Uh, had my ticket to the big show, as they say. I put out two records, and it didn't do much in terms of my personal, you know, notoriety as a um, artist. And I didn't become a household world, but it did. It did amazing. Uh, it had an amazing effect on my songwriting. I spent the rest of the '80s just with, you know, every band that was recording. I ended up, you know, Vixen and. Uh, it was a great time. It was a great time to have a deal and be writing for other records. And I played on Cinderella's record. And they had to ha they had to hire a Hammond organ player to uh, add to the band because I'm the guy who said let's play Hammond on a couple of these things. Um, so that's uh, that's the story of the of the solo career. Um, I put out a few more indie records. 
and uh, there seems to have as a result as, as a result of all of that, I developed somewhat of a cult. Is you know, uh, I have no idea how big the cult is. I I get. If, you know, you know, one of on lists of the hundred greatest AOR artists. I'm always, you know, somewhere in the back half, you know, but I'm on it. I don't know why. <laughs> My records were not even released in Europe; they were bootlegged, you know. Wow. Um, but, um, and I was uh, the process of of making records uh, for me was uh, painful, you know. Uh, but you still do. Yeah, right. Well, you know, doing things with a little bit more aplomb and a little bit more uh, pleasure, you know, for a self-critical person uh, is a lifelong uh, experience, you know. You just try to work your way into more, more smoothness and more smoothness and more, you know, loosen your grip on things and, you know, it's just constant. So, uh, you know, my favorite other motto, which is, the first one was, uh, a fantastic half-finished song is a piece of shit compared to a piece of shit that's finished, is um, it's, it's not the problems you had, it's how well you recovered. <laughs> so that's, the two are kind of related, you right. know? And uh, so... Uh, that's uh, uh, so. So that's that's the the solo story. Uh, I periodically re release, uh, you know, something, and I think I'm going to release something else. But uh, the focus now is uh, a kind of a soup of improving my recording studio at home and making it a tracking studio. It takes a lot of effort and time. Uh, I'm working with Coco Montoya, who uh, is an old friend and. Uh, my roots are, after folk was the blues explosion of the 60s, you know, was uh, a really significant period in, in any musician's life who grew up in the 50s and then was a teenager in the 60s. We all were required to have a blues repertoire to really know how to play it, and I really got into it. So uh, it's great playing with a recognized blues artist, but he's just the sweetest guy and the Renee Beavers and um, Nathan Brown, the other two guys in the band. It's just, it's the most joyful experience. Not everybody wants to get in a van for six hours, but these guys, I do. I mean, it is just great. I'm playing B3 and uh, keyboards. I'll be playing some guitar. And um, I get on stage, and the endorphins are incredible. I turned around to him the other day, you know, you know, we're going through some transitions and some, you know, logistical problems and it's on everybody's mind. But I got up on stage and I'm looking at Coco and Coco's looking at me like, what? I go, I walked over to him, I gave him a hug. I said, I'm so happy. <laughs> he goes, you are? I go, yeah, man. I'm just so excited about playing. And we del delivered an insanely great show. One thing we skipped over was the fact that you've played with Dan Fogelberg, Bill Withers, and tons of other people. Like you were with Frankie Kevin Valley, yeah. Stanley Clark, George Duke. So I could spend Kevin another hour Moore. talking to you about this, but tell me about playing with Bill Withers. 
So I had just done my first gigs with uh, uh, lounge acts, uh, and we, we did residencies at hotels. Uh, uh, the guy's name was Kashir's. Fantastic, fantastic experience. Uh, Wichita, Kansas, and Arizona. Got back from those couple of months of work, and I came to town. I had dough, and I was going to start working on my own career. I was going to make, you know, write songs for myself. And I get this call, and uh, it's, uh, you know, it's Bill Withers. And uh, so I, uh, I did the audition, and uh, he was making his last record on Columbia Records before he split. It was before the Grover Washington hits, just the two of us. So this was coming off of his uh, long career. And uh, uh, went to rehearsal. It was his house in Benedict Canyon. Uh, made a lifelong friend out of the other keyboard player, Don Freeman. Very eccentric. He had gone and just recently played in, I think it was Zaire or it was the Ali fight, mm. where a lot of people came out and did concerts. And there was a, uh, we made a great record called Naked and Warm. I played uh, most of the keyboards on it. Um, there was another guy, uh, I can't remember his name. And uh, Bill is, was an icon. At the time, I was really into Tower of Power, really complicated music, and I looked at Ain't No Sunshine and that kind of stuff as this almost folk music, you know. Now I realize the kind of experience I'd had, but uh, it was my first time on a big tour. After that, there was a little gap, and then uh, again, I think it was, well, anyway, long story short is uh, that was 1976. 1977, I, uh, I f that finished at the end of the year, and a few months later, I got a call from what I call the uh, Toto B Band, which was other great, great musicians who had gone to Grand High School with all the same. They were all part of a mafia of musicians. Uh, Scott Shelley, uh, Scott Edwards, a guy named Jerry, great guitar players, Kelly Shanahan, great drummer and Kerry Hatch. They said, uh, hey, we're jamming. You know, want to come and jam with us? Well, I had been kind of one of these guys that because I had really uh, worked on, I just played and practiced all the time, and I was influenced by Edgar Winters' piano playing and Stevie Wonders and Leon Russell, and I had all this stuff that was, you know, you know kind of following the same uh, thing as David Page. So I go to jam with them, and uh, really went good. We did it one more time, and then I got a call from Kerry. He said, okay, so what's going on, man? Is we have this opportunity to audition for Fool's Gold, which is the band that backs up Dan Fogelberg. He's getting ready to go out on another tour. He just put out a record. It looks like it's going to be big. Ended up going gold, called Netherlands. And um, could you uh, uh, get over here? We're going to learn six of their songs, Fool's Gold songs. He goes, and we're going to do an audition over at the Alley, which is a North Hollywood rehearsal f facility, super cushy. And uh, I think Dan's going to be there. And if he likes us enough, we'll do both bands. So we did this insanely great audition. I mean, we really knew our shit. And we got hired by both. And this was one of the old school 
cushy tours of which, you know, uh, legend is made of. We flew everywhere. We had a luggage guy who collected our luggage when we flew. We had, it's like it was Irving Azoff, you know. So he had the Eagles and he had Dan, and he had come out with Dan. He wanted to make Dan his biggest star. Uh, We had Saturnalian feasts that looked like Beggar's Banquet. I remember coming into the hotel after a gig in Arizona, and there was this long table full of turkey and heavy and all these plates and all these chicks and, you know, and people were getting thrown in the pool. And there was Glenn Fry, you know, in his freaking football thing going like, hey, Lee, have a piece of chicken. Yeah. <laughs> it was like insane. You know, just a youthful indiscretion. Uh, what was the line from Austin Powers? As long as I can have... Uh, consequenceless sex with multiple partners. I'll be as, I'll be right as rain. It was, it was the, uh, it was something that should have been filmed for a documentary. <laughs> the greatest gigs and um, really great playing, and the band sounded like a record, um, and it lasted all summer long. And uh, at the time, I was uh, writing songs, and actually, uh, when we were on a little break. Uh, Kelly, the drummer, and I went in the studio, and I remember cutting a couple of songs with them, and you know, and uh, so that that was the Dan Fogelberg gig. Let me ask you this because I got to wrap this up. But you've had the opportunity to work with so many great people, either writing songs or touring with them. What is it about you that gives you those opportunities? I don't know. I refer to myself as the Forrest Gump of rock. You know, in Forrest Gump, he was privy and, 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 and put in these positions, not through his incredible intelligence, but through some um, metaphysical, he was a cog in a larger wheel. And I, I don't understand it. Uh, I've, had, I've, I've been on stage and in situations in which, from, by my own estimation, I had no business being in. And I, I, another great musician was talking about that. You know, I was like, you know, I was going, I, uh, that guy, Scott, who does the bass lessons, said that, that I, have, I was on these great gigs and I have no business being on it. Clearly, we did have a business being mm-hmm. on it. Um, maybe right place, wrong time, or maybe there's some deeper cosmic thing, you know, that they're just an aura, you know, where I walk, you know, in. Um, and, uh, you know, but uh, I know I was like in, in Liverpool with Dave Stewart one night having dinner, waiting for Ringo to show up. I'd been hired by Dave Stewart because his a music director had heard about me and, uh, you know, checked me out. And the next thing I know, I'm there, you know, and we didn't get along ultimately, uh, me and the music director. But, you know, there I was. And uh, and. Uh, Got falling down drunk at the Cavern Club, and you know, f- you know, somehow made it back to the hotel. And you know, I mean, those aren't the why you do it. It's just, it's like uh, all of the playing was great, and all of the functionality that you would want to be able to provide if you're a musician of service, which is that's why I look at it. I'm there to serve my employers, you know. Stan the Clark, George Duke, I had a cover on one of George Duke's records. He'd cut one of my songs. 
and I happened to be uh, at the Conway Recorders recording one of my demos with my publisher, the guy who would ultimately not be able to pick me up because the finances weren't great, but a uh, great guy. And I walked in and I said, man, I need to go out. You know, I need to get some extra money. Is anybody touring? And the engineer said, well, I hear George Duke and Stanley Clark made a record and they're touring. And Evan had just told me that George had my song on hold. And I went, shit. Okay, and I looked at Evan. He goes like, go for it, man. You know, he wasn't worried about me. My, my output was insane. It wasn't going to take away from anything. He goes, you're still going to have to ride on the road. I go, I, I can do it. So I go over, and there's a giant room full of people. It's a cattle call. They want a guy who can play keyboards and guitar. I'm going like, I could get this gig, you know. That's all I do. And, uh, and I saw George and Stanley, and I walked up to George and said, hey, George, I'm Jeff Lieb. And he goes, she can wait forever. I go, yeah. I said, I, I just wanted to know if you cut it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm really up for this. But he goes, I got a copy in the car. You want to go hear it? Yeah. George Duke is like Buddha. I mean, I loved him immediately. And he said, that came out great, man. He, he, I sit in this Clinet car that was a million-dollar car, and he goes, he goes, this is the first song I've ever sung full voice. Because, you know, honey, it's you, sweet baby. You always sing in falsetto, right? He goes, I sang this. It sounded great. He did a great version. I said, fuck, that's great. So what's going on here? He goes, we're going to go to Europe. I know he didn't tell me. He goes, like, yeah, we're going to do some dates. I go, I go, so you're looking for, look, a guy can play keyboards and piano. I go, well, I do that. He goes, y you want to, I go, okay. So I go back in the room, and, and he goes up to Stanley. He goes, like, hey, she, you know, she can wait forever, and Stanley looks at me. Okay. So they put me right up there, you know. I wasn't in, I'm, everybody else was in the line, I, and I go to the keys. I, first, I put on the guitar, and I can't remember what we played, but I, you know, I, my chops were up and everything. I played some guitar, and Stanley's playing. And then he said, he said, come on over and play some piano. So I go over to the piano. He's got this synthesizer thing he's going to put on, so he wants him to play the comping parts. And I go, okay. He goes, I said, well, you got anything you want me to play? And he plays this part. I go, okay. And he steps aside, and I play the part, like, immediately. Because copping shit by ear is all I've been doing my whole life. And I looked up, and Stanley did one thing. He looks at Georgie, he did that, motherfucker. <laughs> and everybody looked really depressed down there on the floor. I was like, Jesus Christ. So I get a call the next day, and... His manager, Herb Cohen, calls me. He goes like, all right, man, you got the gig. Um, uh, you, you, you good to go? I go, man, you know, I, yeah, I'd love to go, but, you know, I um, you know, I just signed this publishing deal, you know. and I, uh, where, where, where are you going? He goes, Europe. I go, when do we leave? <laughs> he, go, he laughed. We had so much fun, and uh, 
I'm playing freaking guitar and keyboards with two jazz greats. Did I feel like, who's pulling the strings in this? Yes, I did. I didn't even have like a, I mean, I had like one guitar and I didn't even know what, what equipment to take or how loud these guys are going to play. And, you know, it was like a lot of pressure, you know. And then I got back and uh, I didn't feel I was being paid enough. I was being paid like I was one guy, you know, but I was doing the work of three guys and I went to renegotiate and, you know, uh, and I quit. I quit Stan the Clark and George Duke because I wanted to write songs. I guess that's the best place to end is I had a gig with Stanley Clark and George Duke. And I went down after I failed to get a raise. And he goes, you know, we don't want you to quit. I go, yeah, man, but I, I, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to quit. OK. And they stayed out for another couple of years, you know. Same thing happened with Carla Bonoff. I went down and auditioned for her right after Dan Fogelberg. Or, uh, yeah, right after the Dan Fogelberg tour. And I went down and I got the gig. And she called me up the next day to tell me I got the gig. And she said, you're really a great player. And, you, you know, you clearly, you know, really know how to play a lot of stuff. My music's really simple. Are you sure uh, it's not going to be too confining for you? And I hadn't given a thought to that. I just, yay, another gig, this would be great. But I'd also gotten a call from a guy named um, uh, Bill Quaitman, who literally was like playing with Little Feet. He was like, he had this great drummer, Armin Grimaldi and George Sopich on guitar, and uh, uh, a great bass player. And it was like this really greasy music and so totally fun. And like, you want to play? Hey, how about a little more? Give me a little more. So, <laughs> so. So I'm listening to this sort of cautionary thing going, well, now that you mention it, I do have this other gig that's a little bit more, you know, a little looser, you know, maybe I should do that gig. And she goes, really? I said, well, I don't, I mean, I don't want to be in a position where I'm overplaying with you, you know. She goes, no, I, well, oh. Uh, Okay, so I, I kind of went, I guess next time somebody says, you sure you're going to be happy, I should just say, yes, I'll be overjoyed. Because <laughs> she stayed out for another two years, and I didn't have a publishing deal back then. So, you know, I made all my decisions based on, you know, my internal, I want to do this, now I want to do this, now I want to do this, you know. And uh, was it the best financial road to take? I have no idea. I have no idea. But my guess is that everybody else would say, like, oh, yeah, you know, going for what you want to do is way better than doing what you think you're supposed to do. <laughs> and you know? you're still doing it. Well, you know, opportunities are narrowing, but, yeah, it is, uh, the future is still full of uh uh, possibilities. I'm 70, you know, I'm still in good shape. And um, there are some musical accomplishments I'd like to, um, you know, get under my belt. I've got a whole slew of music that I need to release. And uh, part of upgrading my studio now is uh, 
giving myself a, a facility to really do it with, you know, in the way that I want to do it. Because I'm tired of programmed drums and I'm not interested in perfection anymore. So I'm perfectly psychologically now oriented towards um, using the studio to record events that are happening in the studio that involve real people playing. I don't want to quantize things. I don't want, you know, to, I want to present art and, and uh, but commercial in the sense of that it would appeal to people. It's a fine line to walk, you know. But uh, going back to old school recording, I'm not using a tape machine, I'm still using Pro Tools, but it's, it's, um, I'm holding this phone in case I get a text, I gotta go. But, uh, you know, that's what's going on for the final 20 years of my, my life is uh, uh, organic recording, organic songwriting, um, stories and narratives that um, are, um, um, you know, uh, well, not you know, just significant, but saying things that I don't even want to say need to be said as much as that I need to say. You know, note. that I need to say. Thank you so much All for having right. us, Jeff. You got it, man. Thank you.